You have not yet jacked out of 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. And that's fine, because this is episode 30. The connections are clean. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is John Masanori, who uh, helps you get a little extra stuff when you make a successful run. Just don't make an unsuccessful one. He comes in the first pack of the spin cycle, opening moves, and we'll cover his full abilities later as we get to the runner side of that section, of that pack. We do have some breaking news and also a bit of precognition in advance of the third booster pack for Reboot, Style, and Slander. So between all of that card discussion, different articles and discussions about deck lists have had to get pushed back to another week. I'm trying to go get back into my weekly routine, but that's probably going to mean slightly shorter episodes, so i got to stop shoving so much stuff into it. Well, anyway, enough rambling. Let's get going. Breaking news. We have two pieces of information here. First, the Winter Worlds was held. Uh, V-Slice ended up the champion in the finals against Goblin Mode with Echo Memvaults for the corpse side and Ian Sterling for the runner. There was some streaming done. Uh, actually, Goblin Mode did some streaming. Big Boy did some streaming. I will link to any videos for that I can find. The other breaking news is that the next pre-constructed league is starting up in about a week. So this is a great opportunity for you if you're interested, have been listening, and want to play some more structured games. The pre-constructed league is the way to go. You just take a deck and you go. It's already built for you. You already know it's good. So that means that if you do badly, it's only your fault and not the fault of the deck. Precognition, style, and slander. This is the upcoming third booster pack for Reboot. It's going to include 30 cards. And so over the last couple of weeks, the big boy has started to spoil those cards. This uh, we, First, he did the seven rebooted cards. And then up to this point, I'm recording this on the morning of January 7th. So I assume he's going to spoil one today, but I haven't got that one yet. Uh, I will announce the other ones that are going to, that have been already Spoiled. I'll stop using the word spoiled because it's just spoiled. Anyway, the seven new or rather rebooted cards start with Exclusive Party, which is from Salset Island, the fourth pack in the fifth cycle. Uh, remember that Reboot Project only goes through the fourth cycle of the original Fantasy Flight Games release. Exclusive Party is a criminal event with zero cost and one influence. You draw one card. And then for each copy of this card in your heap, you get one credit. The change in Reboot is that you also get a flat one credit. It's uh, fairly similar in that way to the way Freelance Coding Contract was changed to give you always a flat amount, even if there's nothing. Even if you're not just getting any programs with that card, or in this case, even if there are no other cards in your heap. It's also a limit six per deck, so it's one of those that Fantasy Flight printed where there were six copies of the card instead of the normal three. Ubax from Terminal Directive is a shaper console. The install cost has been reduced from five to four. It is three influence, gives you one memory unit, and allows you to draw one card at the start of your turn. So kind of like a free click. Ultraviolet Clearance also from Terminal Directive, is an HB triple operation. So use all three clicks. 
It costs six is four influence, and you gain ten credits and draw four cards. Then you may also install one card. So we've had a green level clearance already. We have not yet had, have we? Blue level clearance? I don't think that's come along yet. Uh, violet and ultraviolet level clearance come in terminal directive. Actually, it's not ultraviolet level clearance. They didn't put the level in there. I think that's a mistake. I think it should have been ultraviolet level clearance. Bailiff comes from Democracy and Dogma, the third pack in the fifth cycle. It's a Wayland barrier, the res cost of two and a strength. It used to be zero and is now going to be two. It's also two influence. And whenever the runner breaks a subroutine on Bailiff, the corp gains a credit. The only subroutine says, end the run. Another one from Terminal Directive is Long-Term Investment. A neutral asset with a res cost, instead of two, has been reduced to one, a trash cost of four. When your turn begins, you place two credits on Long-Term Investment, and then if there are at least eight credits there, it gains the ability click take any number of credits. Self-growth program comes from Sovereign Sight, which is the first pack in the eighth last cycle from Fantasy Flight. It's an NBN operation that costs zero and is three influence. You can only play it if the runner is tagged, and if you do, you add two installed runner cards to their grip. And the final rebooted card, that one, self-growth program, not changed. Also, ultraviolet clearance was not changed. Uh, Respiracites, which comes from the immediate preceding pack, Crimson Dust, the sixth pack in the seventh cycle, is an Anarch hardware with an install cost of zero, three influence. When you install it, you get a meat damage. And the first time each turn that you have zero cards in your grip, you draw a card, well, now it's two cards, and put a power counter on this card on Respiracites, and then when it has three or more, you trash it. All right, those are the seven rebooted cards. Also, ten new cards have been uh, announced. The first of them is Smear Campaign, an NBN 3-2 agenda. When you score it, the runner loses one credit for each card in their grip, and the corp takes a bad publicity. Reverse Engineering a Shaper run event costs one, three influence, make a run on R&D after you complete it and if it's successful, you search your stack for a piece of hardware and install it, reducing the cost by one for each card you accessed from R&D. Plausible Deniability, a unique NBN 5.3 agenda, once per game, when the runner accesses this agenda from a central server, you may pay two credits. If you do, it cannot be stolen this turn. Not only is it unique, it is also limit one per deck. Chronal Retrofitting, an HB 3-1 agenda. When your turn begins, gain click if the runner spent or lost a click during a run last turn. CDO Portfolio is a Wayland asset with a res cost of 1 and a trash cost of 3. It's also 2 influence. When your turn begins, take 1 credit, if able. Otherwise, place 1 credit from the bank and draw 1 card. So, I'm trying to think through, like, what is this doing exactly? So, on a, after you, you install it one turn, and then the next, when your next turn begins you put a credit from the bank on it and take a card. Then the following turn, you take that credit. And the next turn, you're going to put a credit and take a card. So at the beginning of each turn, you're either taking a credit or drawing a card. So it's sort of like pad campaign in that way. Power grid reroute. This is a new feature that has been introduced into, into Reboot. It is a collaboration agenda. So it's a 5-3 and it is HB and Wayland. So either one of those can put it in their deck. The ability, when you score, when you score this uh, power grid reroute, you trash all installed hardware and all virtual resources. 
There are three of these collaboration agendas. The second is Wayland and Genteki. It's a 4-2 called Adaptive NetBrains. And the advancement required requirement is decreased by one if there is another installed card with three or more hosted advancement tokens. Then the ability, when the runner makes a run, you may move an advancement token from an installed card to another installed card. The third collaboration agenda is HB and Jinteki, which was commented on. There was lots of conversation about each of these cards. Here's where the Discord uh, server, the Reboot Discord server, is a great place to be because each of these cards is being talked, discussed, discussed which decks they might fit in. I, I'm not taking all the time to do that because, again, I'm only familiar with about a third of the card pool. So if you want to get into some deep conversation, that would be the place to go. But my first thought upon seeing this one is something that was mentioned. I think Eowashi mentioned it, which is HB and Jinteki don't get along. But, you know, we can paper over that by saying that, you know, even if even if uh, Chairman Hero and Director Haas are not friends, it doesn't mean that some of their subsidiaries might not be able to do something together. A Psychomagnetic Pulse is the name of the agenda. When you score it, the corp divides these following effects into two groups, and then the runner chooses one of them to resolve. The four effects are the runner trashes a program, runner has a brain damage, runner gets two net damage, or the runner has two fewer clicks to spend next turn. So this is interesting because it's the it's called the I split you choose mechanism, right? So the corp says, well, all right, I'm going to pick uh, brain damage, net damage on one side, or trash a program, two fewer clicks on the other side, and the runner has to pick which of those they want to accept. You could also split it one and three. I guess you could split it zero and four, but I don't know why you would do that. Kyudoka is a Genteki sentry with a res cost of three and a strength of six. It's also three influence. As an additional cost to res it, you must forfeit an agenda. So natural comparisons are to Archer. And somebody, did they say that Kyudoka actually means Archer? What does Google Translate tell me? Nope, that didn't help me at all. Somebody suggested that maybe that's what, that's what Archer is in Japanese. I don't know. I can neither confirm nor deny. Anyway, uh, the res cost is three for Kyudoka, four for Archer. Both are strength six. Both have four subroutines, and Kyudoka subroutines are the corp may draw one card, one net damage, one net damage, and end the run. And our final uh, spoiled new card for this week is Trojan Stable, an Anarch Virus program with an install cost of five. It's also two memory units, it's two influence, and you place three virus counters on it when you install it. When your turn begins, you remove one hosted virus counter and gain three credits. So there are your currently spoiled cards. There are 30 cards in the pack. We've now heard from 17 of them, 13 to go. Satellite Uplink. Opening Moves, the runner side. Opening Moves was released September 27, 2013, a year and three weeks after the core set was released. And when it was announced, which was back in May of 2013, Lucas Litzinger, the lead designer, although he's called the lead developer in this article, uh, but he's listed as the designer on the box, had these comments to make about the cycle as a whole. Welcome to the spin cycle. This cycle expands upon the game in exciting ways and focuses on two mechanics, one that already exists within the core set and one that is making its first appearance in the LCG. The first focus of the spin cycle is bad publicity. Corps will find plenty of powerful cards that will tempt them to take bad publicity. To what lengths will you go to keep those pesky runners out of your servers or take them down in meat space? Runners will gain ways to take advantage of bad publicity. They'll even find ways to usurp the corporate messaging machinery and tag them with some bad publicity. On the whole, 
managing bad publicity becomes an important aspect of business. Too much bad publicity, and the court will find that its servers are tissue paper, and the runner is a pair of scissors. If the corp takes too much bad publicity, chances are they've lost. Fire up the PR machine. The next theme running through the set is the introduction of double operations and events. These cards provide powerful effects at a loss of flexibility. Each double costs an extra click to play. That's a giant investment for a runner, eating up one half of his base of four clicks. Doubles are even riskier for the corp, taking up two-thirds of its turn. But the payoff can be game-changing. Players of the classic 1990s game may remember this mechanic, and almost all of the original doubles are back in one form or another. In addition, they are accompanied by many new ones. These cards can change the rhythm of the game and provide for even more dramatic and exciting finishes. Of course, not all of the set's cards play to these two themes, and here are some other exciting tidbits about what it includes. A fully upgraded Psy card to trigger all new mind games. Deadly new illicit ice for each corp. A criminal console worth all of its 11 cost, although not in uh, the opinion of the Reboot Project. A card that can deal 6 net damage. The spin cycle was a lot of fun to work on and should provide for interesting new strategies on each side. There are many game-changing cards, but we wanted to make sure that the focus of the game stayed firmly on initiating and defending runs. So get ready to jack in. Again, that is from Lucas Litzinger, the lead developer for Netrunner at the time. In opening moves, the first pack, there are nine runner cards and 11 for the corp. Of those nine runner cards, five have only have been adjusted in some way, uh, one of them a nerf. The entire spin cycle has seven nerfs, three on the runner side, four on the corp side, and uh, one for each in this pack, opening moves. We'll get the corp in the next episode. The breakdown for runner factions is three cards for Anarch, two for Criminal, three for Shaper, and a neutral card, and for the first time in an expansion in a data pack, no new identities. The nerf is first. It's Anarch. It's Pawn, a Kaisa program with an install cost of zero, zero memory units, and the change is its influence has been raised from one to four. There's a very specific reason for that, and we will get to it a bit later. The Kaisa is a, is a name applied to things that have to do with chess, and Pawn is naturally a piece in chess. So there's this chess-based suite that's thematically uh, woven through, um, through, the, through the cycle, and it's connected to the Anarch identity. So the ability on pawn, click host pawn on an outermost piece of ice, protecting a central server whenever you make, I'm sorry, protecting a central server. Whenever you make a successful run while pawn is hosted, either move pawn to the next piece in, or if it is already at the innermost piece, trash pawn and install a Kaisa program from your grip or heap for free. All right, so what's happening here? Essentially, uh, if you know chess, it helps to be fairly familiar with chess to remember how these different pieces work. You're going to put pawn at the outside of a tower of ice. Let's say there are three. And then you make a run, and after that run is completed, you move it forward to the second piece. And then after that, the next time the run is completed, you move it forward to the first piece. And then in chess, pawns can be promoted. When they reach the final rank, you can turn them into another piece, a queen or a knight or a rook or whatever. And so same thing here is that it gets promoted. You get to install another piece for free. The artwork here is from Liga Smilschkane. As for the buffed cards, the four of them, they are another, uh, both Anarch cards get buffed. Frame job, a double event. That's the first of 18 in this cycle. 
as mentioned in the announcement article. So that's about a sixth of all cars in the cycle are doubles. The change is its cost has been reduced from one to zero. Of course, you also have the extra cost of paying a click and its two influence. The ability of frame job forfeit an agenda to give the corp one bad publicity. The other Anarch program, Rook, another Kaisa program, has had its install cost reduced from two to one, and it is two influence. Click, host Rook on a piece of ice, not already hosting a Kaisa. If it is already hosted, Rook can be hosted only on ice protecting this server or on ice in the same position protecting another server, uh, counting from the in inward out. So this is a convoluted way to say that hosting Rook can also include moving Rook. In chess, Rooks only move in a line, straight line, horizontally or vertically. So that's what's happening here. Uh, you are taking your Rook that's being hosted in one server and you're moving it across. Like, let's say uh, there are multiple servers, each with two pieces of ice. So you can move it to the second piece of ice in some other server, or you can move it in or out. Okay, but why are you doing that? <laughs> That's what you can do with a click. You can host it somewhere. The ability is that the res cost of each piece of ice protecting this server is plus two. Uh, the one, one criminal card gets buffed, hostage, a double, another double event. Its cost has been reduced from one to zero. Of course, there's the extra cost of the click. It is also two influence. Search your stack for a connection, which is a subtype of resource, and add it to your grip or install it, paying the cost. Artwork here from Matt Zeilinger. Shaper, their card False Echo, a program with an install cost of uh, used to be one, now zero, two influence. Whenever you pass a piece of unresed ice, you may trash false echo. If you do, the corp must res that ice or add it to their hand. And as for the four unchanged cards, Criminal's Gorman Drip V1 is a virus program with an install cost of one, one influence also. Whenever the corp spends a click to draw a card or gain a credit, so using that basic ability, place a virus counter on Gorman Drip, then it gains the ability click, or it has the ability click and trash, to gain a credit for each of those counters. Shaper, Lockpick, a stealth hardware with an install cost of one, three influence, gives you one recurring credit for using decoders. Uh, going to be particularly useful if you have a decoder that uh, keys off of stealth, which we do not have yet. Motivation is a resource with an install cost of zero and one influence. When your turn begins, you may look at the top card of your stack. And the neutral card, John Masanori, a connection resource. You can go look for him with hostage. Install cost of two. The first time you make a successful run each turn, draw one card. The first time you make an unsuccessful run each turn, take one tag. The source, covering the runner nerf in opening moves. So the change here is for pawn. Not widely considered to be a good card, but the fact that its influence has changed from one to four means that what the concern is, is being used somewhere out of faction. And so the big boy's simple comment about uh, pawn is, our buff to exile makes this nerf necessary due to the power of the street chess engine. So recall the buff to exile is that exile draws two cards when you install something out of the trash, out of the heap, rather than just one. So let me talk briefly about the street chess engine, even though it includes two cards that we haven't seen yet. I'll provide a link in the show notes if you want to take a look at it for yourself. It relies on a combo 
relies on using Exile, and a combo with three copies of Pawn, three copies of Deep Red, the console coming up, and one copy of Scheherazade. So Pawn we know, Scheherazade comes in the next pack. It's a demon program, so something that hosts other programs, and it gives you a credit whenever you install a program on it. Deep Red is coming up in two packs. It's a console that gives you 3MU specifically for Kaisa programs and saves you clicks for using them. So in that article, it describes how the, how the combo works. He says, I won't blame you if you don't catch it right away. I certainly didn't. Once Scheherazade and Deep Red are both in play, you can install a pawn on Scheherazade, netting one credit, and immediately move it off to be hosted on a piece of ice protecting a central server. Again, because Deep Red allows you to trigger that click ability when it's installed. Pawn is the only Kaisa that allows this. Knight, Rook, and Bishop all have rulings that disallow moving once hosted on Scheherazade. Now, when Pawn reaches the end of a column of ice, it is promoted into the Kaisa of your choice usually installing from your heap. While you can't use this to reinstall the same pawn due to the card's wording, there is nothing preventing you from installing another pawn that was previously trashed, immediately netting a card draw from Exile's ability, and here's the key point, two cards in Reboot, and a credit from installing on Scheherazade, as well as immediately moving off to be hosted on a piece of ice for free, thanks to Deep Red. The upshot of all this is that every time one of your pawns gets promoted into another pawn, you net a card and a credit. Once again, two cards and a credit. If there's a central server protected by a single piece of ice, every run you make will trigger a pawn promotion. If you have all three pawns active, two installed and one in your heap, each successful run will make will make will net two cards, and two credits. But of course, now it's four cards and two credits. Once you finish explaining all this to your opponent, your runs will result in overwhelming click efficiency, netting five actions for the price of a click. And again, with the buff to exile, that's actually seven actions because of that extra card for each pawn getting promoted. So, the pawn nerf. It has gone from one to four influence, Deep Red and Scheherazade are still only one influence each. So previously it took you seven influence to import this whole package into Shaper, and now it's 16. So that's too much. You could still keep it intact. You could, I think logically the thing to drop is the Deep Red, so that gets you to your 15 influence limit because you really want all three pawns and you really need Scheherazade. So you could maybe squeak by with only two of Deep Red, but then there are some other key splashes in the deck, like Parasite and Data Sucker and Femme Fatale. You don't have any influence for that. Now, I can't say whether this change actually breaks the deck completely, but clearly it makes it less consistent. Reboot has introduced a lot of powerful deck construction options and made many archetypes more competitive. But sometimes, in doing so, something needs to fall by the wayside. And in this case, it's street chess. Matrix Analyzer. Now we'll talk about the runner buffs from opening moves. First, Frame Job, which is sacrificing an agenda to give the corporation a bad publicity. The obvious comparison here is to Data Dealer from the core set, which was the criminal, but was also basically a double. Uh, it wasn't called a double. Instead, you would spend a click and then, you know, to play the card, zero cost, and then the instructions were spend another click and an agenda, or it says forfeit an agenda and spend a click, however it says it, and then you gain nine credits. I mean, it's, the, it's functionally exactly the same it's just not called a double. So later on, when there's a card that actually will search for a double event, you can't search for data dealer with it. 
but in all other ways, they're exactly the same. In fact, to the point where now frame job also doesn't cost a credit to play. It is also zero credits to play, just like Data Dealer. So, two double events, spend two clicks, zero credits, and an agenda. Which is better, nine credits or bad publicity? Well, on first blush, nine credits would seem to be better. It's certainly a bigger influx of uh, money. But, you know, that bad publicity is going to be there for you every single run for the rest of the game. So, if you make nine more runs, you will have made just as much money on frame job. Plus, the bad publicity can be used for other things. Well, not yet, but that's what Lucas said, right? That bad publicity is that runners will gain abilities based on bad publicity. So, very possibly frame job early in the game and with some support from other cards that help you with bad publicity better than data dealer now as far as the actual change from one to zero well i mean what more could you change i guess you could change it to two bad publicity but then that gets really crazy really fast so at least it is exactly the same as data dealer in this way in its in its uh, cost rook uh, Rook is only the second card to increase the cost of resing ice. So uh, the only one we can really compare it to is Xanadu, which was a resource. Rook is a program. Xanadu's cost is three credits to install, and then it increases all ice by one. Rook's cost was two credits. Now it's only one credit. It increased all the ice in that server by two, but you can move it to other servers, except every time you move it, it costs a click. So here's where we see the importance of reducing the cost. Because once you've installed Rook, and then you move it, well, now you've got an issue because you've spent just as much as you have on Xanadu, only you're more limited. When you move it again, now you've spent more. Uh, theoretically, if you move it enough, wow, it's very click-intensive, very very, uh, gonna mess up your tempo. Unless you have Deep Red installed, which of course doesn't exist yet. But without comparing Deep Red, just take into account Rook and Xanadu. It's a good reduction to drop it down to one. Maybe it could have even gone down to zero, but one is certainly good. Hostage. Well, here we're starting to really roll into the ability to search for cards. This is something that was missing at the very beginning of the game, except in very limited situations. But those cards, especially Special Order, the criminal card that will search for icebreakers in the core set, I mean, almost an auto-include for a lot of decks in the early days. Jin is the other uh, searches for viruses. That's very much more a niche situation. So you'd see it in deck like noise decks or any deck that's running a lot of viruses, but you wouldn't really see it outside of there. But now here... In the last three or four, I don't remember which one Replicator came out in. I think it came out in the fifth pack, searching for hardware. Of course, self-modifying code will search for any program. And now we have Hostage that's searching specifically for connection resources. But looking at the differences in costs, and, and, even the, and you have to kind of include the install cost, I think, since uh, Hostage has a double play cost. So, let's see. Let me sort through this. Well, let's just start with Hostage, right? So it's two clicks, now costs zero instead of one. But you may also install, so the installation is included with the cost of the click. So in a way, uh, it's, two, it's a click to play, a click to install, and you, you, it's, anyway, and no other cost. Of course, you have to, have to pay the cost to install the card. Uh, special order is a click and a credit to bring an icebreaker to your hand. Gin, first you have to install it. Then every time you want, and, and it costs a credit, used to cost two, now costs one. And then it's a click and a credit every time you want to bring a, bring a virus program to your hand. So you see where um, special order is way better than gin, gin being very narrow, because it's very, much more expensive just to get that ball rolling. 
course, then you can start pulling lots of viruses and you can host them on gin. So it has other advantages as well. A self-modifying code is the click to install and then just two credits and the cost of the program. And then you can install it. So very click efficient, a little, little uh, money intensive. And then with Replicator, it just brings it back to your grip. So Hostage seems to be more in the vein of, as far as strength, with self-modifying code. And yet here, because the installation click is included and is free, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe I'm, it's a fool's errand to try to compare all of these. I feel like I've just said the word click about 74 times. But dropping it in cost suggests that searching for connection resources is maybe not something you're really going to be doing a lot. What connections can it use be used on? Let's talk about that part. From the core set, we had Data Dealer, Decoy, and Aesop's Pawn Shop. In the Genesis cycle, we had several. The Helpful AI, Compromised Employee, Joshua B., Scrubber, Inside Man, Underworld Contact, Cady Jones, and Mr. Lee. In Creation and Control, Professional Contacts and The Source. And so far in Spin, John Massonori. So, I suppose a situation where you want one of those really bad, including Hostage, is like including a fourth copy of one of those cards. Normally, it would cost you just a click and the cost. It's only costing you an extra click to play a hostage. So that's really not a big additional cost, but you've really got to want that uh, resource or that third copy of that resource or whatever it is. The fact that it's zero credits has been dropped to zero. Again, what else can you do to weaken the card? I guess you could reduce the, make it cost one less to install. I guess I don't have any observations on hostage. <laughs> I can't quite figure out. I can't quite figure out whether it's it's not good, and the zero is an indication of it being not good, or whether it just needs to be reduced in cost because it's not as useful as FFG maybe thought it would be. And let's look at false echo. Also, uh, probably a criminal tool, really, even though it's a shaper card because they're the ones that often can often run with no breakers and false echoes taking up memory. And the most logical comparison, comparison is to uh, forged activation orders, because it also does things to ice that isn't resed, forces the corp to, uh, to res something. They've both been reduced in cost from one in the FFG days to zero now. And course forged activation orders is a zero cost event and the corp must res the ice or trash it whereas false echo is a zero cost program so the corp knows it's there you pass the unresed ice first and then if you trash the program so it's it's a single use you know like an event really it's just a telegraphed event the corp must res the ice or just take it back right so they can just reinstall it on a future turn. Although I guess if you can do this early in the turn, get them to pick up that ice, they don't have any money for some reason, maybe you do an account site, they, they don't res, you do an, I don't know. It's, I, I don't think it's very good. I think the large, uh, you know, the, the idea is that it's just not very good. And so you've reduced the cost now from one to zero. What more could be done? I mean, without completely changing the card. I think we're in one of those situations. So, there you are. Not a very good card. Zero cost program. Make it cost zero MU. Ah, that could have been done, right? We have a pawn zero MU. So if it were zero MU, then it might be more useful because it wouldn't be cluttering up your, wouldn't be cluttering up your rig. Maybe that would be too strong. I don't know. It wasn't done. It's not a very good card. Enigma, taking a look at some of the flavor and explanations of what's going on in some of these cards. I just wanted to touch on three of them. Uh, one is Hostage. It's an image of 
You see Director Haas there on the screen. It seems, and Thomas Haas, we're seeing the back of Thomas Haas. He's sitting there on a crate or something. Looks like he's been kidnapped. Got his hands behind his back. So maybe being ransomed. And yet his fingers are crossed. So uh, here's where we see that Thomas Haas is, well, one way to read it is he has engineered this to get something out of his mom. Another way to read it is that she's in on it too. It's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of hard to see. Like reading reading through the, the big uh, news story in the Worlds of Android book from a few months back, there's a segment where they're interviewing Thomas Haas. And he sounds like he's working right there for the corporation, like he's a main part of the corporation. Uh, but then you read the flavor insert from Creation and Control, which we got a couple of weeks ago, a couple episodes back. And... He sounds like he's, well, what have you done now, mommy? So it's hard to tell exactly. Is he supposed to be, well, right there on his flavor text, doesn't it say his, his disappointing his mother is his superpower or something like that? So I would guess that he's actually trying to uh, pull one over on Director Haas. However, what does that have to do with being able to search for a connection? I, I don't know. It's, a, it's funny that it's a runner card and Thomas Haas is on this runner card. Maybe it's just funny. Maybe it doesn't have to have a thematic connection. Motivation It uh, is, is, is just interesting because the flavor text is at odds with uh, the picture. So the flavor text is from the supposedly a book of some kind called Musings on Cybercrime, where the author says, Normal people, sane people, do not embark on a life of cybercrime. Who can say what motivates the deranged mind? An imagined slight, personal failings blamed on external forces, or the ever-popular lust for money? And yet here in this picture we see Exile sitting at, I don't know, a cemetery? It looks like a virtual cemetery of some kind. And he's holding a picture in his hand, and it looks real sad. So it seems like his motivation must have something to do with not an imagined slight, not some personal failing, not money, but something uh, somebody he loved was has died. And if he's a runner, then the logical ex- extrapolation of that is that it's the corporation, some corporation was to blame for his lady friend dying. So that seems like a fairly normal motivation. I mean, it's still crime, life of crime. Although he's a shaper, not a criminal. So anyway, just... The disconnect there between the flavor text and the uh, picture is, is amusing to me. And then Gorman Drip. I actually never picked up on this, but I saw some reference to it in some comment somewhere. And I think it's right. So Gorman Drip, what does it do? It gives you a little bit of money every time the corp does something normal. And then you wait for that money to accumulate, and then you just take it. So it really has a strong thematic echo to the movie Superman 3. Have you seen Superman 3? Maybe not. Uh, It came out in 1983, so I was pretty young when I saw it. Uh, Watched it on, uh, not even on VHS at home. We We rented a video disc, not a laser disc. It came like in a, it was about the size of a record. And you'd put the whole disc in, and then you'd pull the disc out. And I don't know. I don't know exactly how it worked. Like some disc stayed inside the machine. Anyway, we rented that a lot of times before we got a VCR. So Superman 3, bad movie. I mean, I enjoyed the movie as a kid, but I'm sure it's a terrible movie. It's got Richard Pryor in it, is what it's most known for. And it's funny. I remember it being funny. So what happens is Richard Pryor is this, uh, I think he's like a computer programmer of some kind, and he gets hired by the supervillain to create kryptonite to go after Superman. And so he analyzes it in the lab, and it says, well, here are all of the chemical compounds in it, and then there's some slight percentage of it that is unknown. He's like, unknown? And so he's got to put something down. So he just looks around, looks at his pack of cigarettes and types in nicotine. 
for the unknown part. And so then when the kryptonite is revealed to Superman, he it has an effect on him, but not the normal effect of just making him really weak. It actually makes him kind of turn into a super jerk. And so there's some amusing moments with that. Anyway, the way that Richard Pryor's character comes to the attention of the supervillain is early in the movie, he's working for some he's working for some company. I don't remember. Again, I was young. And he has he hits on the idea where he looks at these paychecks and he sees that everybody's paycheck has a few cents. Like it's some some number of dollars and a few cents. And so he writes a program where he takes the few cents off of these paychecks and deposits them in his own program. And then once he does that, he uh, makes, I don't know, millions of dollars for doing it. And I just remember the part where he goes and he gets like some fancy car and fancy clothes. And people are like, who could have done this? It would have to be a genius. It wouldn't, couldn't be some idiot. And then he pulls up in this very, he's very obviously kind of a social idiot. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry. This is much more long-winded than I intended it to be. So the character's name is Gus Gorman. So what he basically did was he executed the Gorman drip by taking a little bit from stuff the corporation was doing and then pulling all the money to himself later. I do believe that, that that's got to be where the card name comes from. Correct me if I'm wrong. Feedback filter. Well, this is just a quick one. I made a mistake on last week's episode uh, about Cloak, where I said that in Reboot, the install cost was reduced from two to one. Actually, it's always been one. It was the influence that was reduced from two to one. So the big boy picked up on that and corrected me. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I will, I, I will try to pay closer attention in the going forward into the future. Anyway, many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action, the website, netrunner2.1.com, redirects you to the Reboot Project homepage, where you can see links to the pre-constructed decks. Pick a pre-construct, pre-constructed deck, go to the Discord server, join the Precon League, have a great time. Basically just one game a week for, for uh, a few weeks, unless you do really well and then you have to play in the finals. You can play online with you and your buddies at retechie.fun, and if you want to contact me, all the contact information is in the show notes. The AstroScript pilot program this time is uh, returning back to Worlds of Android for a week. There is some flavor in the insert for opening moves, but it's corporation press releases, so probably fits better with the corp side of the pack. So we'll go back and take a look at another line in Jinteki's clones and learn more about them. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Tenma Line The Tenma line of clones has been one of Jinteki's most popular products since its introduction. Specimens offer unparalleled natural aptitude for piloting any type of vehicle, from hoppers to spacecraft to motor sailors. This role is ideally suited for a clone, as Tenmas exploit the human brain's natural aptitude to rapidly assess the dangers of a changing environment and make the best possible choices quickly. Their carefully honed abilities complement their natural appearance and friendly personality to give the human touch to any transportation role, whether it's delivering goods or chauffeuring corporate executives. Tenmas have been in production for years. During that time, over one million clones have been delivered to grateful owners. Jinteki has made minor revisions to the line over its production run, such as small quality engineering adjustments, but the latest units 
share 99.9% of their genetic identity with the very first units produced. Cybernetic components have also been upgraded to keep pace with the latest available technology, but these play a comparatively minor role in the line's expertise. Arguably, the consistency across tenmas is due to the simple fact that they were gene-engineered from the beginning to be excellent drivers. Not only do they control their own vehicles exceptionally well, they are also capable of identifying and avoiding mistakes made by other pilots, including those made by autopilot systems. A Tenma clone is 75% less likely to be the cause of an accident compared to a human. When accidents involving Tenma drivers do occur, they are 50% less likely to result in loss of life or the complete destruction of a vehicle compared to autopiloting accidents. The Tenma line has also exhibited an exceptional degree of reliability over the course of its lifetime. In fact, many of the earliest models remain in the service of their original owners. Ten years since the line's introduction, one would expect a high level of turnover, but this has not been the case. Granted, drivers are subjected to far less stress than clones that serve in heavy industry, but even when compared to other light-duty models, Tenmas have exceeded the manufacturer's expected lifespan. Anecdotal reports indicate owners are purchasing extended service plans rather than replacing them with newer releases, likely due to high customer satisfaction levels. Genteki has not publicly indicated any plans to discontinue support for the Tenma line, which suggests that they have not yet reached a phase of planned obsolescence. Consequently, the natural, projected lifespan of a Tenma remains unclear. Genetic Features Advertising from the earliest days of the Tenma line included endorsements from dozens of well-known racers, each claimed to have submitted some portion of his DNA to the Tenma's design process. Jinteki proudly trumpeted the involvement of these sports superstars, but the Megacorp has never publicly released any of the specific details. Standard Android licensing agreements strictly prohibit the sequencing of a clone's DNA, so these claims are unverifiable at present, and exactly which genes might have been contributed by different individuals remains a mystery. This situation is further complicated by popular opinion polls that attribute different physical appearance characteristics to one or more of the claimed donors. Standard disclaimers associated with a Tenma license do not exclude DNA sequences extracted from animal or purely synthetic sources. Popular speculation suggests that the Tenma genome includes avian DNA as well as human. Genteki has never confirmed nor denied this. Medical records and service charts, both of which are publicly available to non-Genteki employees, do explicitly block out the inner ear schematics. This strongly suggests that Tenmas rely upon balance systems that are completely foreign to those normally observed in humans. Moreover, the Tenma line exhibits levels of spatial awareness, balance, and reaction time that dramatically exceed the normal human range. As is the case with many of Jinteki's clone models, the Tenma line shows an extremely high level of devotion to their current tasks as well as their owner. Some believe that this might be due to loyalty created at a genetic level, possibly incorporated from a domesticated animal, such as a horse or dog. Others argue that such loyalty is characteristic of normal clone indoctrination and conditioning. And Genteki does publicly offer assurances that the Tenmas are one of their most reliable lines, both in terms of dedication to a task as well as consistency of performance. The company does not, however, acknowledge the source of this devotion. 
The clonership manual also includes recommendations that Tenmas avoid a laundry list of common pharmaceuticals. Third-party pharmacists who have examined this list indicate that it suggests a variation in the neurotransmitter system involved in the Tenmas design, perhaps explaining the significant shortening of Tenma reaction time compared to normal humans. Other Enhancements As in some of Jinteki's other clone lines, the Tenma line incorporates a number of purely cybernetic modifications as a part of their standard design. Key among these are retractable mirror shade lenses that are designed to augment the Tenma's vision far beyond human potential. All Tenmas have better than 25 vision and added zoom capabilities. They are also able to readily interface with a vehicle's data readouts, including speed and altitude. In this way, the clones can have an intrinsic relationship with any modern means of transportation. The Tenma line also includes a cybernetic logging system similar to a BMI, which tracks peripheral nervous activity. Over time, Jinteki's analysis of the logs recognizes any uncharacteristic variations in response times. As part of standard maintenance, Jinteki can take corrective steps or issue a replacement if a Tenma's responses are outside of normal design parameters. Because of the monitoring, owners are contacted any time a pattern of anomalies is recorded. I saw myself die today. I think that's accurate, at least biologically. It's also not entirely true, since I'm still here to write this. I'm a clone, identical to thousands of other Tenma models. The only things that really distinguished me from them, at least at first, were a few digits on the code tattoo on the back of my neck. But I escaped. I'm not part of the hierarchy anymore. Yes, someone's still on file as owning me, but they can't catch me. I get to live with at least some of the freedoms natural humans enjoy. I got out because I was better than the rest of my decanting cohort. I'm faster, smarter, and just a little bit more independent. But I was created from the same brain tapes and custom DNA strands as the rest of the Tenmas. I made it through quality assurance. I guess lucky is an important part of why I'm better. Today, I was a whole lot luckier than at least one other Tenma. As I was leaving a job, I saw a Tenma driving a hopper that went completely out of control. We're good pilots, so maybe it wasn't an accident. But it was ugly. The hopper plummeted from the lip of a charging pad 50 meters straight into the ground. When it hit, emergency medical services showed up in minutes. They rushed to care for the passengers in the back. I saw the ambulances carry them away. Maybe some even survived. No one took time to check on the driver. Nearly an hour later, the wreck was carted away with his body still inside of it. After all, he was only a clone. I'm a living being, but I'm not a philosopher or an advocate. I don't pretend to know whether or not I'm human or have a soul, even if my genetics are made from human sequences. I'm too busy just trying to survive to be worried about saving anybody else. I do my jobs, I take my pay, and I just keep getting by. But at the accident today, my thought wasn't, that could have been me. My thought was, that was me. Obviously, I wasn't inside his head and he wasn't inside mine. I'm still alive to enjoy the high life I've earned. At the most, he's my identical brother, a truth made even more real by the same neural conditioning Jinteki used to train both of us. Yet before today, I'd never met him. My life now is very different from what his was. I escaped and I've earned a certain level of luxury. I'm proud of what I've done, and I'm not sure my clone brothers could do the same thing even if they were given an opportunity. But clones don't have opportunities. We have duties and responsibilities. We live in a state of constant risk, but there is no reward. There's no payoff. We aren't given privileges. For most, it's not even possible to earn them. Instead, we are expected to simply fulfill our duties until the time of our pre-planned obsolescence then we're supposed to just quietly and permanently retire. That's a lovely metaphor, nay? Today, I'm reminded of my own imminent mortality. My lifespan isn't intended to last as long as a natural-born human's. 
I don't know how long I'll last. Ten years? Twenty? Five? I don't know if Jinteki's rejuve treatments would work on me, even if I could find someone who'd be willing to apply them to a clone. I bet they wouldn't. It's not a level playing field. It's not fair. And there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. Keep running. Keep ahead of the law. Keep a fat credit count to keep me happy in my old age, however soon that turns out to be. But maybe someone might think about us clones and realize that we do have thoughts and emotions. We're not bioroids that can simply be shut down and programmed to accept their own mortality. We're human. We're also essentially slaves. It's not right. And maybe someday things could change so that we wouldn't always have to be. I'm not saying cloning should end. I wouldn't be here if it didn't exist. I'm saying that there needs to be some way for clones to earn just a little bit of dignity. The chance to live some part of a life that could be our own. Humans made us, and they need to realize what they have done. They don't get to be our masters. They are our parents. And they must acknowledge the next generation. I got out on my own skills and merits. If others are going to escape, then they can do it for themselves. If I stick my neck out too far, I'm pretty sure it's going to just get chopped off.